Good Saturday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hope all of you have had a good weekend so far. I know that my wife and I have had a good Saturday so far. It's almost uh, coming to an end, but we um, are looking forward to our day trip tomorrow that we will be taking. So um, even during this time of uh, COVID, uh, we're still fortunate enough that we can take uh, day trips to uh, places not far from where we live and uh, still um, practice um, good uh, social distancing uh, measures. You know, I guess I could say real quick that uh, social distancing is not anything new. It's a practice that actually has been going on around um, since the time of uh, the medieval period in Europe. And it is probably fair to say that uh, even in colonial times that many people did practice social distancing, especially when they knew there was um, an epidemic in their neck of the woods. Many cities were known to experience, for example, smallpox epidemics. So, and in, in order to be safe, everyone, you know, did practice some form of social distancing. And a good way, for example, is if you were infected with smallpox, you would be sent to what was called the pest house. So this way you would be um, uh, kept away from any other innocent uh, bystander or uh person in general who had not already been infected with it. Uh, this way they were keeping you in isolation and um, in a sense trying to save your life. So um, even in this uh, time of uncertainty in the 21st century, social distancing is not a bad thing. However, um, there are a lot of people out there who seem to not want to follow the, the rules and make things harder on those who are following the rules. Not to get into a political discussion here, but um, if everybody could, you know, obviously learn to wear their masks and practice some form of social distancing, uh, the problem itself may not go away 100% completely, but it can be modified in many other ways. But anyways, we are still on um, Christian de Spigna's uh, novel, or book rather, I should say, Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's Lost Hero. I tell you, Dr. Warren is quite a um, remarkable figure, and I think it's wonderful that Christian de Spigna has done a wonderful job with bringing back to life a character who had been forgotten for so many years by not just historians, but um, but by writers, um, and now all of a sudden this man has brought him back into, um, into a, a prominent uh, role. Uh, he may not have um, gotten uh, a top-flight education. Well, of course, he went to Harvard, but he didn't uh, come from, I should say, a family that um, was born into the um, upper... Uh, class of society, one to two percent um, group, meaning those who um, were large, um, what do you call it, land um, own, owning families. But nonetheless, uh, Joseph Warren does uh, deserve to be up there with the ranks of other um, well known uh, patriot leaders like Paul Revere, Sam Adams, John Hancock. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, the list could go on and on. But the bottom line is, this man definitely deserves to be up there. So, 
Tonight's um, discussion is going to be about um, the post, um, what do you call it, the post-Stamp Act years, and I should say everything that is between 1766 and parts of 1769. So let's fasten our seatbelts and let's get ready for the ride. And tonight's first bonus question is going to be the following. After Parliament repeals the 1765 Stamp Act in March of 1766, did everything go back to what it to did everything go back to go back to what it was um, from years before? In other words, did we go back to what life was like uh, years before, meaning like during the the time of the French and Indian War or the pre-Seven Years' War period? Uh, the answer is no. In other words, you know, we just didn't live... Yes, we had reasons to celebrate once the Stamp Act was repealed, but we just couldn't get this assumption that, okay, well, we're going to go about living happily ever after, and we're going to... Now it looks like England's finally um, come to their senses and realized, well, they have been treating us, especially those people in Massachusetts. They have been treating us like dirt all along. Now maybe they finally got it through their their thick schools and realized, well, maybe these people aren't so you know stupid after all. They actually know how to voice their opposition and say, hey, enough is enough. But I actually hate to say this, that... Um, there was and would still remain a state of hostile tension between Massachusetts and Parliament. Most notably, between uh, most notably on the side of uh, the people of Massachusetts and and uh, how they would view Parliament. That is most of Parliament in terms of those who who sided with the crown and wanted to uh, keep imposing uh, measures, not just on the people of Massachusetts but for the other colonies in terms of trying to find ways to go about paying for this um, for that French and Indian, Indian War, given that it was fought on North American soil. So in 1767, Dr. Warren and his wife, Elizabeth, are the parents of two children who are rather very healthy. And I say that because... Infant mortality rates in the 18th century are very high. Most children usually don't even make it past the age of 10. If they make it to the age of 10, that is remarkable. As I've said before from a previous podcast, that um, that usually how it was was that if a child made it to the age of 10, he or she was actually considered to be an adult. And in most communities or towns, children didn't even attend church until the age of 10. And I learned that before at uh, Colonial Williamsburg. It turns out that many um, families were convinced that if they uh, had taken their children to church at a very early age, that perhaps their children could be the carriers of diseases to where it might you know, infect um, other members of the congregation to where there could be a disease outbreak. It's probably not a bad idea. I mean, think about it. You know, yes, there are ways to go about modifying um, a medical condition or 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 some kind of a uh, issue. But the bottom line is, is that um, if your child, it's not so much that your child had not made it to the age of ten, but 
but just knowing all the uncertainties out there, the last thing a family would want to do is bring infected children into church only for their children to be responsible for spreading um, unknown diseases or just um, illnesses to other healthy members of the congregation. So the bottom line is the Warrens, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Joseph Warren, are very lucky that, they're, that they have two children who are rather very uh, healthy and are probably maybe better off than other, uh, other uh, children of their age. But in February of 1769, Dr. Warren's maternal grandfather, Dr. Samuel Stevens, uh, passes away. And why is this um, important to mention? Because uh, Dr. Stevens' death um, really affects Joseph Warren deeply because his grandfather had been a father-like figure to him for some time. And we have to remember, too, that uh, Joseph Warren, or rather I should say by now he's a doctor, Dr. Warren's father died when he was only uh, 14 years old back in 1755. And that was, around the, that was at the time when Dr. Warren himself had uh, first gone off to Harvard. But I think it is fair to say that if Dr. Warren's father were alive today, he would be very proud of what his son has accomplished. Now, like most 18th century doctors, was Dr. Warren himself an advocate of bloodletting? Well, the answer is yes, but it was on a case-by-case -case situation. In other words, what works for one person in terms of being, being one patient won't uh, be the same for every other patient. And in case any of you all know what bloodletting is, um, what I do know about it is that uh, back in 18th century time, um, Doctors believe that in order to get rid of, what do you call it, not just bad blood or anything that they felt was um, wrong inside your body, they would um, do what was called bloodletting. They would, um, they would drain out um, blood, and I don't know how much blood that they would drain, but they would drain a certain amount of it, and once they felt that whatever amount of blood was drained out, that was enough to have um, gotten rid of the bad ailment in your body. That's just my interpretation of it, but, uh, but that's what they did. They didn't know any better, but that's, what they, that's the assumption they were under. Now, as I've mentioned before from previous podcasts, uh, Joe, Dr. Warren has, uh, from time to time, has written articles in the Boston Gazette under a pseudonym uh, name, meaning a um, alias, um, undercover name. Uh, so in other words, when he's writing these articles, nobody has no way of knowing who is the actual person. And it's also protecting his identity, because after all, his practice is one that caters to people from all ranks of Boston society, but most notably, um, I'll say it here in a moment, um, I, what I am going to just say is this, given how talented of a writer Joseph Warren himself becomes, is it fair to say that his works were both fair and impartial? Uh, the answer is yes. This can be attributed to how successful his medical practice, as I said a second ago, given that, it, that, that he caters to uh, numerous people from all walks of life, but the most important thing is that it also caters to many prominent families who are of both uh, Tory and Whig status. 
you know, think about it on the um, Whig side, he's catering to Samuel Adams. He's catering, he's probably catering to the Otis family. He, you know, for all we know, he could be catering to uh, John Hancock. Most likely he's catering to Paul Revere and to John Adams. But on the Tory side, he is catering to uh, the Hutchinson family, uh, the Olivers. He's He has to be careful. It's not so much he has to be careful what he has to say, but if he reveals his actual identity in these newspaper articles, he could he has the potential to lose clients. He also has the potential to make enemies uh, politically and socially uh, short and long term. Right, here's another uh, bonus question here. What legislation does Parliament pass that will cause more headaches, or let alone, I should say, conflict in Massachusetts come 1766? Uh, the answer is the Declaratory Act, or a.k.a. the Townshend Acts, which gave the British government absolute legislative authority over all 13 colonies. So, in other words... This act is pretty much going to um, overpower anything that any one of the uh, 13 colonial legislatures could deem to be opposite or invalid or, or, or even unfair, let alone. So basically, the colonial legislatures aren't going to be allowed to have a say. Basically, they're now being, it's like being sub subjected to a dictator a dictator who, you know, in this in this case, it's not King George III making the laws, but yet he's a he's tolerating it. He's allowing for Parliament to um, basically treat the thirteen colonies like punching bags. But this legislation, being the Townshend Acts, it's named after Charles Townshend, who is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, now, if any of you all wondering, what is the Exchequer? It's another term for uh, the National Treasury. In other words, um, this legislation itself will place taxes on items ranging from imported paper, paint, glass, silk, to tea. And remember, folks, uh, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, uh, whether it was from the last one or from the previous uh, one, that... After the French and Indian War ended, the British Treasury faces a huge uh, deficit, and so they've got to find ways to um, get revenue back on track, and that means uh, imposing taxes on the 13 colonies in colonial America. So it's interesting to note, um, some of you are going to probably say to yourself, well, what's the difference between the Stamp Act and the Townshend Acts, Okay. The stamp acts were taxes that were internal. Internal meaning that it was coming from within uh, the inside. The taxes administered on behalf of the Townshend Act were external, that is, outside. Now, did the pe bonus question here, did the people of Boston voice the same concern about the Townshend Acts like they did with the Stamp Act? Yes. Many Bostonians would come together in opposition of this act, which included refusal of purchasing goods imported from Britain. So if you refuse to purchase or uh, have goods brought over from Britain, what would, we, what would we call that? Well, for starters, you could call it a boycott. 
But in this case, um, in 1767, or I should say on October 28th of 1767, there was a non-importation agreement. Non-importation means that you agree to um, prohibit the um, importation of goods arriving from England into um, any of the 13 colonies uh, from uh, colonial America. And in, in case any of you all want to know the difference between import and export, import means goods coming in, export means shipping goods out. So this non-importation agreement gathers more than 650 signatures and Joseph Warren himself is one of those is one of those people who signs along with many of his, his associates you know it is fair to say that there are probably people in Massachusetts who do oppose this non-importation agreement they probably are dependent upon the goods coming in from England to Massachusetts especially if you um are in uh, high demand for silk or for glass, tea, you know, any nice uh, luxurious commodity that you could, um, that you know you can afford to buy, but that you know you can um, show your wealth off to. Because there are people who like to show their wealth. So um, it's pretty um, phenomenal that you have more than 650 signatures behind this non importation agreement. Now, February of 1768 is important because Samuel Adams, John Adams' cousin, will write a letter criticizing taxes that are brought on by the Townshend Acts. This letter will call for intercolonial communication and unity. This is an early per precursor to the committees of correspondence that were formed um, down the road in the future that were, um, it was where all 13 colonies came together and, you know, wrote to one another to explain what, what situations were going on in their neck of the woods and wanted to know, hey, what was going on in your neck of the woods, say down in South Carolina, and what all we might have in common in terms of uh, problems with England. Now, here's a, another bonus question. After all, the bonus questions are important. Samuel Adams's, um, was Samuel Adams's letter in opposition to the Townshend Acts sent to um, legislatures of the other 12 colonies? In other words, um, did, this, um, did all this go through? Uh, the answer is yes. And how it really shows its effect is that in Massachusetts, the lower house votes in strong majority to uphold Adams's letter. In other words, there were, there were those who opposed uh, this letter, but it turns out that, it, that the vote itself was huge. I mean, there were far more people in support versus those who were in opposition. Those who did oppose, being 17 of them, <laughs> Turns out they had their names po posted on the Liberty Tree. Okay? You know, it's bad enough if you oppose something, but to oppose um, something such as Samuel Adams's letter in opposition to the Townshend Acts, yeah, for those 17 people who opposed, uh, they never heard the end of it. 
and knowing that their names were posted on Liberty Tree, now the whole community, now the whole city, let alone, knows what 17 people opposed it. And it's fair to say that those 17 people, or 17 men, are never going to hear the end of it either. Did the Boston Tories, a.k.a. Loyalists, find town hall meetings to be irrelevant? What does irrelevant mean? Useless? Um, Non-essential? Well, it turns out these Boston Tories, or a.k.a. Loyalists, did find them to be irrelevant because... Most of the groups who participated in them were um, those who stood out in fierce opposition to the crown. Well, think about it. Men like Dr. Joseph Warren, Paul Revere, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, James Otis, and even John Adams himself, they find town hall meetings useful, not just so much in opposition to the crown and parliament, but they have found town hall meetings to be useful prior to all this because this is how business was done. Without a town hall meeting, how can you um, address the needs to a community in general? All right, here's a bonus question. Whom did Dr. Joseph Warren communicate regularly with in uh, London? Now, I'm sure many of you all are thinking to yourselves, are there people in Parliament who are sympathetic? If so, they would probably have to be in the minority. But for all we know, there could be close to 50% in Parliament who object to how um, their own government is imposing taxes on the colonies over in colonial America, but by doing so without their consent. So, the... Individual whom Dr. Joseph Warren is in regular uh, contact with, and of course you have to remember people, there's no telephone back then, but he is um, communicating with this fellow by um, means of mail. His, his name is John Wilkes. He was an ardent sympathizer to many radicals, a.k.a. Whigs. John Wilkes, I can tell you this much, he and another fellow by the name of Isaac Barry are probably the two most prominent, um, along with William Pitt, are, are some of the most prominent uh, sympathizers over in uh, England to the um, cause, or to the uh, people's cause for, um, what do you call it, for their uh, opposition to the um, numerous uh, pieces of legislation that Parliament passed without their consent. But uh, John Wilkes, um, what's interesting about him is that he published an essay titled The North Briton, which criticized George III and his ministry for various reasons or purposes. But here's the kicker. Was criticism of the king forbidden? Uh, the answer is yes. If one criticized the king in England, it resulted in him or her going to jail. And John Wilkes himself did go to jail. And many in England were angry at the fact that he went to jail just for criticizing the king. I mean, the guy wasn't threatening the king's life. He wasn't going to assassinate him. 
This is a violation right here, folks, of free speech. Not just free speech, but perhaps free uh, freedom of the press. So, Wilkes himself was imprisoned, and it wasn't just bad. It wasn't so much bad enough that Wilkes himself was put in jail, but now you've got protesters and soldiers clashing with one another, and if that's bad enough, ten protesters lose their lives over this whole um, situation. Not to get ahead of things, but this, but I will be mentioning this here probably in another podcast or here uh, episode here soon. But if any of you all who um, were a part of the, my first podcast that I did about um, with uh, Dan Abrams's book John Adams Under Fire and his uh, and his roles with the Boston Massacre trials, the incident involving John Wilkes and his imprisonment. And knowing that 10 protesters lost their lives, this, this to me was an early precursor to what would happen in Boston, Massachusetts um, two years uh, later in, in March of 1770, or I should say on the night of March 5th, 1770, March 5th, 1770 the infamous Boston Massacre. It is fair to say that uh, Joseph Warren chose to represent himself in the same liking as John Wilkes came to be in voicing opposition to the crown. And Joseph Warren would write another article in the Boston Gazette under a pseudonym name being the title of a true patriot, criticizing royal governor Francis Bernard. You know, I said it already and I'll say it again. If Joseph Warren had mentioned his actual name in writing these articles, I think it's fair to say he might have been put to death. He would have, or if not maybe, if not put to death, he would have been in jail. Or he, if not in jail, he could have uh, been sent over to England to be tried just for making accusations about the king. You know, it's one thing to not like what someone's doing. But if you're not threatening the person, is it fair to say that you should still be put in jail? No. See, and again, this is uh, what John Wilkes did in the eyes of uh, King George III in Parliament. They felt that he violated um, he violated the uh, rule on the book in that it was illegal to question the king. If any of y'all would like to know a little uh, interesting piece of history, um, I, I know I mentioned it from, um, I believe it was from John Adams's Under Fire, but for those of you who are new to Anchor Podcast and to my uh, podcast uh, sessions, the city of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, is named after John Wilkes and Isaac Barre. Not so much because they were um, ardent um, sympathizers to um, the to the um, to the patriots, or let alone the colonists in colonial America, in their fight, um, or in their, uh, what do you call it, hostile relationship towards um, Parliament. But it turns out that Isaac Barry coined the term Sons of Liberty. In other words, uh, for years I was always led to believe that men like John Adams and Paul Revere and uh, now Joseph Warren and uh, John Hancock 
and Samuel Adams all came together and said, hey, we're going to form a group called the Sons of Liberty. No, it was uh, Isaac Barry who um, came up with that term. And I think it's fair to say that he came up with that term because he saw just how ardent and, um, what do you call it, um, persistent these men were and wanting to secure not just separation from England, but freedom in the sense that, hey, we as um, 13 colonies can can not only self-govern ourselves, but we can have our own form of government, one that actually is for the people and by the people, and it's not controlled by uh, a tyrant 3,000 miles away. So we have uh, Isaac Barry to thank for uh, referring to this cause or not just the cause, but the um, the men who were behind it as Sons of Liberty. In the article that uh, Joseph Warren uh, publishes, Being a True Patriot, he stated that liberty of the press is essential to people's freedoms when voicing their support and opposition towards matters big and small. Well, yes, liberty of the press is important because, you know, we do have a right to express how we feel about something, even if it means questioning someone's um, decision on something. That is, someone else above us who um, who went about um, enforcing um, a law or enforcing a, rule, a new uh, measure, and if we don't like it, then... You know, should we just sit back and tolerate it? No, but we do have a right to voice our um, feelings about it. And so that's why Joseph Warren truly believes that, hey, we do have a right to criticize Parliament, but just because we criticize Parliament, it doesn't mean we automatically get sent into the slammer for it. All right, the next bonus question is this. Who was the wealthiest man in Boston during the 1760s? It's none other than John Hancock. He would be one of the wealthiest merchants. And as I mentioned earlier, he was actually the only one of our forefathers who saw, who witnessed King George III be coronated in England in October of 1760. But what's unique, or not just unique, but what's important about October 1st of 1768, British troops... Nearly 4,000 of them will enter Boston. And, and we're just not talking troops. We're talking about some uh, regiments, most notably the 14th and the 29th regiments to part of the 59th Infantry Regiment to the Royal Regiment of Artillery. And its head commander was none other than General Thomas Gage. Now, I will tell you all this. General Gage is a very... In He's an interesting character, uh, he's one who, um, he's come into Boston already knowing that he's facing a um, a lost cause, but yet he's going to do whatever it takes to um, to break the, the backs of the rebels. All I can say is good luck. Once the British troops had arrived into Boston, did the issue over where to house these troops divide people along party lines. Yes. Now, we have to remember this too, folks. It's not like there are uh, rental homes up for sale 
Uh, it's not like there are hotels left and right. Okay, welcome to this place. Here's your lodging. Here's your discount for X for for whatever amount of time you're staying here. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Now, interesting enough, though, Doctor Warren did go about housing British troops, and it wasn't because, you know, yes, he had his medical practice did cater to Tory families. But it was mostly in part because he was a Mason. And remember, being a Mason is one of its uh, core principles has to do with being compassionate. And yes, Dr. Warren is a compassionate person. Do you think he could have been too compassionate here? Yes and no. But he does uh, allow uh, regiments or British troop regiments, most notably from the 29th and 64th regiments, to stay at the Green Dragon Tavern. This act did lead British troops to have high esteem towards Warren himself. And because of this act, Warren would eventually become Grand Master of St. Andrew's Masonic Lodge on December 12, 27th of 1769. Well, this is another good example, though, right here, of where Dr. Warren is not burning bridges. And I think it's fair to say that he did this because it, deep down in his heart, he would like to see everything possible in, in the prevention of further escalation. However, he also knows deep down, too, that it's just a matter of time, be, probably before war itself would become inevitable. And plus two, he also probably knows that um, many Tory families in Boston are watching him. They probably know that, okay, if he mistreats any of these um, British regiments or mistreats their uh, leading commanders, that he could lose not only a lot of his, uh, clients from his practice, but that he and his own family could become the subject of, uh, of threats big and small. Now, what were day-to-day uh, -day relations like between British troops and the people of Massachusetts? Fractious. When, when, when I mean by fractious is that it's very tense, very unstable. You don't know what one day could be like from the next. Most British military men um, pretty much held the people of Boston in, in low esteem. In other words, they saw these people as being very inferior to those who lived in civilized society, a.k.a. England. They basically just referred to them as rabble or as nothing but a bunch of mobs. That is, unruly groups of people who are so undisciplined, uh, so, uh, what do you call it, disgruntled that they can't find anything to be happy about. But, they, but it's the opposite. Many of these New Englanders, yes, they are happy people, but they don't like how they're being treated. So the bottom line is that they may not have the best clothing on. They, many, many New Englanders may not have top-of-the-line accessories, but the bottom line is, is that they do, know how to, um, they do know how to work a rifle. They do know how to hold a job. They do know how to um, mobilize they are educated. Basically, these people haven't missed out on anything. 
I would. Is it fair to say, though, that a fair number of British troops were convinced that it would only be a matter of time before war itself with the colonies, most notably um, those people in Massachusetts, would become inevitable? Uh, the answer is yes. And, you know, we've all been told throughout many books, it's fair to say that we've all been told that the British were the most disciplined um, group of men military-wise in the world at this time. Well, it actually turns out that 80% of the British military is comprised of men who are of lower in the lower classes of society. Only 20% really come from the most well-to-do ranks in, of uh, British society. Most of these men who, uh, 80%, uh, for example, a fair number of them were at one time uh, ex-convicts or former convicts, and the military feels that, hey, to keep these men in line and prevent them from um, from going back to jail, they need to be in the military. It's not a bad idea to keep um, people from um, getting out of line, but the irony to it all is that uh, there are accounts that historians do know about that have proven that once uh, the British arrived to Boston, there were a fair number of desertions, and there were many British soldiers who uh, got out of line, who um, tried to escape, and there were floggings by British um, masters towards um, individual soldiers. Some men were even executed for their own behavior or improper behaviors. So the bottom line is, is that the British military did have its share of issues. And I think it's fair to say that any well-known military organization throughout history has probably had its share of issues where men were out of line. So after the British military presence has arrived, did tensions between the British and the people of Boston become worse? The answer is yes. Various forms of violence emerged, ranging from threats to numerous intimidation tactics. Uh, the bottom line is the full nine yards of um, threats just was, um, was ready to explode. And even uh, Dr. Warren himself was not immune to any uh, form of threat. It turns out that an off-duty British officer challenged Warren to a fight and when Warren refused, the officer assaulted him. And over time, Dr. Warren would begin to have more patients coming to him as a result of direct confrontations with Tories, and this included uh, British soldiers. So here, Dr. Warren, for a long period of time, was seeing patients coming to him for medical problems. Now, it's, uh, it's now... These people are coming to him because they've been assaulted. They need to be um, bandaged up. I think this is a sign in, in this scenario now that Dr. Warren's realizing that, hey, things, are, things aren't going to get better, but over time they will get worse. And sooner or later, war itself will become inevitable. So in March of 1769... A town committee, which Joseph Warren himself was a member of, petitions George III to remove all troops. In other words, 
you guys aren't going to win again. It's not so much you guys are going to win against us. It's just that, hey, the presence of troops here is use. It's irrelevant. Um, we, we don't want you all here, but we want to be um, free from constant oppression, and that is we want to be free from these unnecessary pieces of legislation that that don't involve us because we did not give consent. Uh, basically, we don't want, we don't, we, you know, I think for many people in Massachusetts still, they don't want a war, but the presence of these troops here is so bad to where the, the unnecessary violence will get worse, and it will. Well, it turns out that the request to remove all these troops is denied, but the British government, government ministry decides to modify some things here by removing Governor, Royal Governor Francis Bernard from his, po from his post, and they decide to replace him with a close friend of uh, Bernard's being Thomas Hutchinson. Matter of fact, the Hutchinson family was one of uh, Joseph Warren's uh, premier Tory uh, clients for his medical practice. Warren's articles on Governor Bernard were responsible for fueling the public's hostility towards the outgoing governor. But it's fair to say, though, that the new governor coming in, Thomas Hutchinson, I think it's fair to say that it's just a matter of a short matter of time before Warren and Hutchinson no longer can have a meaningful relationship. And, you know, it's one thing to be a patriot. It's another thing to be a Tory. I think it's fair to say, though, that there were many families who did have a decent relationship despite their views. But it only takes a couple of other incidents to change all of that. And we will find find how true that is in our next podcast session. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and uh, have a good rest of your uh, Saturday for all my listeners out there. Good night.